Garon was spindly and round of shoulder, with a little belly that wobbled when he walked. Damon stood straight and proud, and his stomach was flat and hard as an oaken shield, and he could fight. With axe or lance or flail, he was as good as any knight I ever saw, but with the sword, he was the warrior himself. When Prince Damon had black fire in his hand, there was not a man to equal him. Not Ulrich Dane with Dawn, no, nor even the Dragon Knight with Dark Sister. If you're a sucker for cool-sounding names like I am, you saw the name Damon Blackfire for the first time and immediately wondered who the heck that was and wanted to know more. This, then, is the episode for you. We've got more Damon Blackfire than you can handle. He's immensely popular in the fandom. A lot of you have been waiting for this episode for a long time. It's one of the most requested episodes we've had in our three-and-a-half-year run. Likewise, he was immensely popular in-world as well overflowing with charisma and the traits that Westerosi from all social classes admire and seek to embody. He was one of the greatest fighters of all time. Some would say the best. Many of those same would also say that he was never truly beaten in the field. No one could stand against him in single combat. It took arrows to bring him down. Cowardly, cowardly arrows. (laughs) This only enhanced his legend and made him a quasi-martyr. No wonder his descendants troubled the realm for generations after his death. Hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. No Game of Thrones talk today. This is all A Song of Ice and Fire history. There are some spoilers from the Duncan Egg series, actually quite a few spoilers from the Duncan Egg series, as well as from the World of Ice and Fire. It's very mild on A Song of Ice and Fire spoilers. If you are a show-only watcher, this episode is pretty safe for you, as far as I can tell. <laughs> it's a possibility that I missed something, but I've gone over this, this script a few times, and I don't see anything that would be considered a spoiler. Now, you may notice that we don't have a Shea this time. That was kind of a last-minute thing. She's had some things come up, and we took the show-must-go-on attitude since we really wanted to get this episode out as soon as possible. As I said, a lot of people have been waiting, it, waiting on it for a long time. And hey, I'm not alone. I have a very special guest returning from, it's, it was our last Blackfire episode, but that was many months ago before the TV season. Welcome back, Stephen Atwell. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people remember you from last time, but why don't you just go ahead and list your string of titles? Sure. My name is Stephen Atwell. Uh, I'm a PhD historian. I write, uh, I write Race for the Iron Throne a blog dedicated to historical and political analysis of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I also write uh, essays for Tower of the Hand, and I've published a number of books on Song of Ice and Fire. Right on, right on. Very good. We're doing another one of these hybrid episodes. This is is only, uh, I think it's only the second or third one of these that we've done, which is partly scripted and part discussion format. And I would love to hear your feedback as to what you think of this hybrid format. Some people prefer the script, some people prefer discussions, so we're trying to do a bit of both. Uh, Sometimes doing both might not work out the way we think. I like it, but I would love to hear what you all think. Minor schedule change. Um, We're not going to do Bitter Steel episode next. We're going to do the Redgrass Field episode next. And we're going to have another guest, two guests, in fact. We're going to have Stephen and Jim McGeehan from Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, uh, the Brendan B. Fish blog. Very excited to have him coming as well. We're going to have a great discussion on that. We're going to break down all the battles of the war. 
This episode is all about Damon Blackfire, his character, his personalities, and his impact as a person. We're not going to get too deep into the actual war itself. We might, of course, interject another episode before Bitter Steel and Blood Raven. You never know. The way, the way we work is we don't put out an episode until it's ready. We're not going to rush things. We're going to make sure it's right. We're going to make sure we have all the details where they need to be. I can't count the number of episodes we have that are only about a third to half finished. Now, you can help us finish more of these episodes and get others started by signing up to give us a recurring pledge on Patreon. They'll charge you the amount you decide in advance, once per month, and we give you benefits. Sir Joshua Hayescutter called Joshua the Raw, the history of Westeros' first sword, for example. He and other supporters got to see this episode and download it a full week early. www.patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Now, one of the things we'll be doing in this episode is trying to separate the man from the myth. His supporters loved him so much that they tended to exaggerate. Case in point, the opening quote from Sir Eustace Osgray there claims Damon was better than the Dragon Knight. This is pure speculation on his part. Damon the Dragon Knight died when Damon was maybe eight or nine years old. They clearly never fought. Given that, he probably didn't fight this Ulrich Dane guy either. Despite these exaggerations, though, he really was incredible. So, of course, we'll cover that, too. That's more fun. Damon's place in the fandom stands out. And this episode reflects that. Though his life story is extremely compelling, he doesn't really have that much impact on A Song of Ice and Fire. Not directly, anyway. His descendants and allies and other parts of his legacy, now those things have and might continue to have a major impact. But a lot of his appeal comes down to the fact that he's just flat out cool. He's definitely one of the most popular characters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, giving him kind of a a Boba Fett type quality, meaning huge popularity with little to no screen time. The thing is, too, that we've actually heard Boba Fett speak. And while this episode is full of direct quotes from the source material, as usual, none of them are from Damon himself. None such has been given to us. We don't have a Damon Blackfire quote. We've not even seen him on screen, really, unless you count the graphic novels which show the Battle of the Redgrass Field. Highly recommended, by the way. You can get those through Amazon, The Hedge Knight, and The Sworn Sword graphic novels. You can go to historyofwesteros.com. We've got links there on the, on the right side. You can also pre-order The Knight of Seven Kingdoms. Well, maybe by the time you've, you're seeing this episode, it won't be a pre-order. That's due out on October 6th, I believe, 2015. And this episode's coming out right before that. So most of you, it'll already be out. Either way, you want to get your hands on it. The Dunkin' Eggs stories are great. Real quick first. Some meta-history. We always like to start with the meta-history. The first ever mention of Damon Blackfire was by Stannis. I am not a cruel man, Sir Davos. You know me. Have known me long. This is not my decree. It has always been so. Since Aegon's day and before. Damon Blackfire, the Brothers Toyne, the Vulture King, Grand Maester Harith, traitors have always paid with their lives. Now, some would take this to mean that George R. R. Martin hadn't invented the Blackfires nor given them a role in A Song of Ice and Fire until around that time. But references to Aemon the Dragon Knight loving Queen Nerys and vice versa are plentiful in Book 1. This relationship, of course, is a major part of the Blackfire scenario. Rumors that King Darren II was actually the son of Nerys and the Dragon Knight persisted for quite a while and were a main factor in Daemon's proclamation that he was the true king. So I think it more likely George R. R. Martin come up with parts of the subplot ahead of time before eventually giving it a name. I think the reason that Blackfire as a name doesn't appear until book three is in part because of this, meaning he simply hadn't come up with all, all of it. But he had, you know, the broad strokes. What do you think about that, Stephen? Do you think that's accurate, or do you think you have a different take on when he came up with it? Sounds plausible, certainly. I mean, it, you know, the, I think the tricky thing here is just figuring out when certain drafts were started around other... You know, so for example, like, Damon Blackfire, you know, we really don't see much of him until Sworn Sword. Now, when did 
Martin first start writing Swarm Sword? You know, when was the very first draft of that? A little hard to say, but it's certainly plausible. Right on, yeah. And of course, with these things, we never can tell. Maybe one day George will tell us in an interview, but he honestly may not even remember exactly when he came up with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was, I don't know, 15 years ago. I don't know when exactly. He might have something to kind of place it, but yeah. Anyway, so he may have intended it all as historical backdrop only. But along the way, the idea to wave it into the main storyline struck him, and the rest is history, meta-history. Now, a comparison to Robert Baratheon works really nicely here, thanks to the second ever mention of Damon. Not only was Mr. Blackfire similar in prowess to Mr. Robert, both were elite fighters, but as rebels, they were similar in terms of threat level. Here's Jamie speaking of Ares. He had finally realized that Robert was no mere outlaw, to be crushed at whim, but the greatest threat House Targaryen had faced since Daemon Blackfire. Now, a major difference, of course, was that Robert actually won, <laughs> slaying Crown Prince Rhaegar in the process. Upon his arrival at King's Landing, Robert found Ares and his family dead or fled, betrayed by a certain Kingsguard knight, the one who provided us with that last quote. On the other hand, Daemon was defeated, in large part thanks to Crown Prince Baylor, and King Garon's Kingsguard faced no such conundrums. So let's go to part one, born under a bad name, starting with Damon's childhood. Damon was the name Dana gave to this child, for Prince Damon had been the wonder and the terror of his age, and in later days that was seen as a warning of what the boy would become. Damon Waters was his full name when he was born in 170 AC. So 40 years prior to that, his great-grandfather, Prince Daemon Targaryen, a.k.a. the Rogue Prince, died in battle against another Targaryen prince. 27 years later, Daemon, a Targaryen bastard, would fall in battle against another Targaryen bastard. There's quite a few other things they had in common. Both wanted crowns, and both were contentious via their very existence. Both wielded Targaryen Valyrian steel blades. One fought for the Blacks versus the Greens and rode a real red dragon. The other was the not real black dragon who fought against the red lots of colors in there now both came very close to kingship through war in his lifetime prince daemon personally killed or had killed at least two other targaryen princes but daemon blackfire had already killed a targaryen king at 41 days old how about that well sort of king baylor the blessed was so shamed by daemon's birth that he fasted himself to death but he never ended up killing any targaryens in battle make no mistake though they had very very different personalities these two daemons despite these parallels. Since our purpose is to continue our in-depth analysis of the major players in the Blackfire Rebellions, focusing on their early lives as much as anything else, in order to understand who they are and the environment and events that molded their personalities. The young are susceptible. Thus, it is crucial to look at these early phases when we can. So, of course, we start with the person who tends to be the prime factor for most human beings ever. The mother. Damon's mother was Dana Targaryen, eldest daughter of Aegon III sister to Daron I, the young dragon, and Baylor the Blessed. It was planned for her to be Baylor's wife, of course, but as we know well, she was instead confined to the Maiden Vault, and the marriage was not consummated. And she was entirely set aside by the Septon King in his early, early in his reign, rather. Despite this isolation, her life story is quite interesting. Though honestly and unfortunately, there are huge gaps in the available knowledge on her. It's disappointing to realize that we probably won't learn anything more until... Fire and Blood, the history book that's going to come after the series. But we'll look at the bright side. What we have is very cool and helps us considerably in understanding Damon. There's no mistaking that many of the strongest beliefs she held were also seen in Damon and or many of his followers. 
Perhaps the most important detail, missing detail rather, is that we have no idea when Dana even died, other than it wasn't during childbirth or soon after. But it could have been anywhere from early in the reign of Aegon IV to, to much later, to after the Blackfire Rebellion, for example. She did not reveal who the father was, ever, as far as we know, at least not publicly. It was his father that revealed the truth much later. His prowess and charisma would draw quite a lot of attention later on, but that probably didn't get going until a while after he first picked up a sword. So we can guess that she was his primary influence early on. So, Stephen, let's discuss Damon's parentage. What do you think about the possibility that Dana died before Aegon IV claimed him as his son? I'm a little skeptical of that, simply because, you know, given Aegon's rather lazy nature, uh, I think he needed an outside you know, influence pushing him to do this. I think that was, that was probably Dana. That's a good point, too, in general, that... I think that a lot of things that Aegon did may have been somebody else's idea. There may have, like when Joffrey executed Ned on the steps of Baylor's uh, sept. That probably wasn't his idea. He loved the idea, but I think it's pretty widely believed that Littlefinger is the one who, you know, made that suggestion and Joffrey seized on it. And Aegon the Fourth. I wonder how many things like that happened with him. George R. Martin himself said, from an S, from a suspect Martin. Later, as a pampered prisoner in her brother's court, Dana made several escapes, usually by dressing as a washerwoman or serving girl, once with the connivance of her cousin Aegon. And that is Aegon IV, who was only a prince at that time. So several escapes. Do you think it's possible, maybe, that she got pregnant from somebody else and then it's just a popular rumor that Aegon IV was the one? Or is that a bit, a bit of a stretch? You know, it's always possible. What I would say is that everything we know about Dana seems to infer that she really, really believed in Targaryen incest as a principle, as a kind of uh, ethos for living, that, you know, she desperately wanted to shame Baylor into, you know, in her mind, doing the right thing. So if it wasn't Aegon, it had to have been another Targaryen. I don't think she would have gone for anything else, especially, you know, given the way that we see that, um, that Daemon was raised. Emphasis on his pure Targaryen nature clearly seems to have come from her emphasis on sort of the purity of the bloodline. I think I agree with that. I don't think she would have tried to get pregnant from another, from a non-Targaryen. And we know that she wanted to get pregnant, which is interesting. And we'll talk about that in a little, a little bit later. But uh, do you think, how much of a secret do you think it was at court? It's, it's said that it was rumored that he was the father it was, well, you think it was kind of an open secret or just something that was whispered or, or was your, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, you know, when you're sleeping with, with everyone else, <laughs> you know, you make yourself kind of an obvious target. Yeah, it's like, it must have been that guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember the, the, like, who else could it have been at the time? I don't think there's any other really strong options as far as Targaryens go. I mean, maybe Viserys, but I doubt it. Yeah, he would have been kind of older, and he seems kind of proper. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess you're right. There's, it probably has to be Aegon by process of elimination, and, and given what we think of Dana's personality. Now, you know, the, the interesting thing to me has always been, you know, did she want to be, in terms of sort of who she would have preferred the father to be, is I think she always wanted to be with, with um, Darren, the first. Yeah, she did. I think you're right. She wanted she she certainly idolized him and she thought highly of him and this is the basis for much of why we think that she hated the Dornish because of their betrayal against him in the parley, etc. So that and that of course leads us to how Damon was given a hatred of the Dornish 
early in his life. We'll get we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But it, it came from both her and his father, apparently, which is very interesting. So we can believe that even if Dana was alive in 182, when the king announced that Damon was his son, that she was fine with it, true or not. Because after all, that means he's, the, you know, the son of the king. That's it's harder to be higher in the hierarchy than that, even though he's a bastard. Now, she may have thought that there was more to it than that. She may have had, her ambition may have gone even farther. So I want to take a look at how ambitious she was, because an ambitious mother with a child like Damon would be a huge influencer. And again, even if she wasn't ambitious, or only moderately so, he wasn't raised by his father until later, as far as we know. So that only serves to make it crystal clear that if we want to know Damon, we have to know his mother, because she seems to have been the only one around for a while. Now, here we go. She even contrived toward the end of Baylor's reign to get herself with child, though some might say it would have been better had she been less defiant for all the trouble that son brought to the realm. So let's talk about that ambition. Why do you think she contrived to get pregnant? Was it just to shame Baylor, or do you think there was some ambition behind it? Maybe that she had plans to win over Aegon himself and get him to declare their child legitimate. Uh, or, possi- or possibly to basically pass... Um... Uh, Damon off as the son and heir of Baylor the Blessed. You know, she was, after all, his, you know, Baylor's wife, at least initially, and it would be, you know, well, well, certainly the circumstantial evidence for consummation would have been weak. It, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, there's no DNA testing, um, and even then they're all related, so that would be a little bit tricky. Yeah, they all have the Targaryen DNA, right? It's <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so the fact that it's towards the end of Baylor's reign, maybe she thought that, you know, she could, and even despite the, the precedence of the Great Council of 101 um, and, you know, the precedence of, of Jaehaerys I, that she might have been able to get uh, Daemon declared the heir uh, right then and there. Absolutely, and... There's some more backdrop we need to make sure people are aware of here, and that is that she may have felt the crown belonged to her rather than her uncle, because after Baylor died, the crown passed to Viserys II. But there was a brief movement, a brief effort to consider crowning Dana, because she was the next in the line of succession if you do the all-male issue followed by female issue plan, rather than the no women can inherit the throne plan. Which, of course, that had been sort of decided by the Dance of the Dragons, but it wasn't set in stone, clearly, or else this wouldn't have even been an issue. Now, Dana's isolation in the Maiden Vault prevented her from having a lot of political allies, so as well as Viserys being the hand of the king for so long, this this didn't amount to much. But that doesn't mean she didn't feel it. That doesn't mean she didn't feel like it belonged to her. And she may not have given up her chance to be close to the crown, even though it was given to Viserys. And that would be through her son, Daemon, that she had with the later king. So here's another quote. Though both of the sons of King Aegon III were dead, his three daughters yet survived. And there were some amongst the small folk, and even some lords, who felt that the Iron Throne should by rights now pass to Princess Dana. They were few, however. A decade of isolation in the Maiden Vault had left Dana and her sisters without powerful allies. And memories of the woes that had befallen the realm when last a woman sat the Iron Throne were still fresh. Dana the Defiant was seen by many lords as being wild and unmanageable besides, and wanton as well. For a year earlier, she had given birth to a bastard son she named Daemon, whose sire she steadfastly refused to name. The presidents of the Great Council of 101 and the Dance of the Dragons were therefore cited, and the claims of Baylor's sisters were set aside. 
Instead, the crown passed his uncle, the king's hand, Prince Viserys. And not just because she's Targaryen, but because she was arguably the heir to the throne instead of Viserys, like we said. So this precedent made it easy for him to come out ahead, though her claim may have been easily brushed aside. Like I said, her feelings doesn't... Who knows what she felt? She may have felt really bad. And this is a stubborn person, defiant. And we talked last Blackfire episode about the possibility that Aegon was the one who poisoned his own father. It's possible that was Dana. Do you have any thoughts on that, Stephen? Do you think that's even remotely possible, or is that is that kind of crackpot? Certainly, it does seem that Dana preferred the the uh, archery to poison. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Viserys was not shot by arrows. And it seems like you know, yeah, her her personality would have would have. Uh, tended more to a sort of an open confrontation rather than, you know, poison is is uh, very subtle and passive. But they say poison is a woman's weapon. Nah, nah. No, but, uh, yeah, but we don't have any evidence for that. It's pure conjecture. Now, Dana did hate the Dornish. We're pretty sure about that. The, her, her idolized brother, as we just discussed, was killed by them via treachery. And Viserys' ascension to the throne, not only set aside Dana and her potential ambitions, but it also meant that eventually a Dor- half-Dornish prince would sit the throne. And there are a lot of Targaryens and a lot of other people who really are offended by that idea. So how could Dana have prevented this? Well, the answer is she went off and made her own Targaryen by, you know, getting pregnant via Aegon. They're both Targaryens. They made themselves an incest Targaryen. And this, the timing of this pregnancy is really interesting. She contrived to get pregnant. She planned on it. But it, it was within months of Prince Daron's wife, Mariah, getting pregnant with event- the eventual Baylor Breakspear. So, perhaps that was the trigger. It was like, now's the time to act. There's, we can see in the future that there will be a Dornish prince sitting the Iron Throne. No more incest. No more Targaryen traditions. That's a big deal. Traditions are a big deal in Westeros. What do you think about that? Do you think that puts a little a little extra color in the and her possibilities there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 timeline is all coming together. You know, there's so many motivations swirling around at the same time. There's, you know, who who takes over after Baylor dies? Um, you know, is it going to be a Targaryen? Is it going you know, and given that Baylor's life itself had been, you know, so much sort of wrapped around this whole question of, you know, the Targaryen tradition of incest. So yeah, I could definitely see, you know, both Dana and Aegon deciding that they wanted to establish a sort of a pure-blooded alternative to, you know, the eventual uh, Daron II. Yeah. Yeah, Dornish encroachment, we'll say. <laughs> and how interesting. When I, just, when I noticed that timing, it really stood out to me. It's like, well, hmm, she intentionally got pregnant right at that time. Interesting. And then not long after Viserys died, you know, like a year, year and a half later, Viserys is dead too. Very interesting, very interesting. Anyway, that has to remain a mystery because we have no evidence <laughs> for that. So... Con- but there's another possibility here. Concealing, and it refer- it's, harkens back to what I just said about the Dornish or the Poisoners. Now, well, I said the women are the Poisoners, but that's what people say. That's the thing, right? Poison is for women and Dornishmen, whatever that saying is. It's said different ways by different people. But maybe that's something she had in mind. Maybe she was protecting Damon by concealing his identity. I don't know. This is a bit of a stretch to me, but I, ha- I think it bears mention. Again, if, if she think, buys into that propaganda of the Dornish being poisoners, 
we don't know much about Princess Mariah, Daron's wife. We don't know if she was, the, you know, ni- a nice person like Melissa Blackwood or a schemer like Barbara Bracken. No idea. Somewhere in the middle? No idea at all. So it's possible that Dana was worried about this child of hers, even though he was a bastard. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, I, I lean more towards this sort of idea that she was hedging her bets in terms of trying to pass him off as, as Baylor's kid. Okay. So, that yeah, that gave her the option of, of naming the father later based on whatever the political climate was at the time. Makes sense. Play her cards close to her chest. I like it. Now, Aegon, of course, as we know, did not claim Dana as one of his nine great loves amongst his many mistresses. I wouldn't even say that she was ever his mistress, really. Uh, Apparently, they only slept together the one time, maybe more than once, but certainly she doesn't qualify as a mistress. But either way, he he didn't seem to love her. And maybe she didn't. I, I can't imagine that she really liked him that much either, given the types of men she was... She respected and was attracted to, as far as we know. Aegon's the opposite. <laughs> so, <laughs> but not when he was young enough. Not when he was young. So, but over time, as he got fat and greedy and lusty, there's no way she continued to respect him if she ever did. But that doesn't mean she didn't have influence over him. Though the personalities are different here, consider this possible parallel to Robert's deathbed and Aegon the Unworthy. Setting aside the fact that they were both lusty, gluttonous, formerly promising kings. No, that's not where we're going, as fun as that is. We're talking the politics of succession here. Dana convinces Aegon to legitimize his bastard children on his deathbed. Consider that possibility. Again, Aegon may not have been the one to have that idea. Of course, the idea had been around for a while. The idea of Aegon legitimizing one of his bastards. The whole idea of legitimizing all of them. I don't know if Dana suggested that, or if it was his own idea. But I uh, I love considering the possibility that someone else gave him that idea. So, Ned Stark, compare this parallel here. Ned Stark gets Robert to unwittingly delegitimize his own children because they're actually bastards. And this didn't work because Cersei used the threat of violence and the gen- and general corruption at court to cast aside Robert's proclamation. Only Sir Barristan reacted to Cersei shredding Robert's will. But Daron the Good is no Cersei. He's not going to do that sort of thing. He was pious. He was lawful. He did things by the book for the most part, as far as we know. So whether this particular imagining (laughs) of the circumstances is remotely accurate or not, Daron did not challenge the legitimization. They stood regardless of why they happened or who suggested it. But we're not there yet. We're getting ahead of ourselves. The point of all this, though, it does have a point. We're not getting ahead of ourselves for no reason. It's to show where Damon got a lot of his attitudes. The attitudes of his mother and his father towards the Dornish, towards these other things... Even though Damon didn't know who his father was, Aegon was still going to be an influential guy, being the heir to the throne, being a, a prince, etc. So later we'll see how Fireball and Bittersteel and some other lords and knights of the realm encouraged Damon to take the, the crown. But he may have been on that path from day one via his mother, Dana the Defiant. He was certainly set on a path to succeed. Raised at the Red Keep, this handsome youth was given the instruction of the wisest maesters and the best masters-at-arms at court, including Sir Quentin Ball, the fiery knight called Fireball. He loved nothing better than deeds of arms and excelled at them, and many saw in him a warrior who would one day be another dragon knight. Now, it's unclear what age he is for this quote, but regardless, the dragon knight had died fairly recently. He died a hero, and he lived as one, too. So the fact that people were making comparisons to him is a very big deal. Damon was charming, martial, courtly, thus popular. He was also kind of unthreatening because despite all that appeal, he was Damon Waters. Despite his Targaryen looks and talent, he was a bastard. And we all know what that means in Westeros. Besides, his father liked him, 
even during the time before he admitted he was his father. One wonders if being a bastard wasn't slightly less bad back then. What do you think, Steve? Do you think bastardy? Do you think that Blackfire rebellions, the whole Blackfire situation, made the made bastards look down on even more? Or do you think it was just more of the same, or that Damon transcended some of that? I think it certainly didn't help. I mean, uh, you know, the the I think the classic example here is if you look at the way that Catelyn brings up the Blackfires over and over again. Um, you know, it certainly um, seems to have put a kind of taboo or kind of prejudice against legitimizing bastards. Right on. What did Damon make of his own situation? What do you think he... Do you think he knew who his father was? Do you think he had any thoughts on that? Do you think the other kids called him names for not having a father? <laughs> Damon, no dad. Damon Waters in his breeches. And what do you think he made of Aegon before knowing he was his father? I mean, he's this lusty, greedy guy. I don't think, you don't think Damon would have liked that. It's kind of an interesting conundrum there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to say because, you know, obviously, you know, while his mother kept Stum in public, we don't know what she told him in private. Certainly he might have had his own suspicions. I mean, clearly, you know, just by looking in the mirror, he was he must have been pretty clear that he was a Targaryen on both sides. You know, because if you just sort of look and, you know, he, he just needed to look at his, his <laughs> relatives, really, and just sort of see, well, okay, Baylor doesn't look anything like me. You know, the, the thing about Aegon IV, though, is, you know, he was, for all that he was a drunk and a lecher, um... You know, and just sort of unable to kind of rein in his That's appetite. That's true. He also had that kind of Henry VIII charisma going on. So, you know, there might be the sort of attitude of like, you know, he might have been told about, you know, what his dad was like when he was young. That's true. He, he might have had a kind of a, a, a kind of a rivalry thing. He's like, you know, showing that he can outdo his dad. I agree with that you know, kind of follow through on, on the potential and actually make something of it. Uh, you know, it's possible that he just, uh, you know, either didn't have a kind of... And, sorry, the what I was going for. It's possible he sort of displaced his kind of male role model thing onto Fireball or, you know, other sort of uh, strong male figures in his life. That makes sense. A fireball would probably be one of the most important ones. Maybe some of the Kingsguard would be good examples as well, not knowing exactly which Kingsguard. We don't even know all their names at that time. But that's a good possibility. I like that idea. And, you know, despite how bad Aegon's court was, it probably wasn't that bad for Damon because, you know, he he had his mother around. His his life was probably fairly simple because he wasn't the target of, Damon, of Aegon's excesses. He wasn't in the, you know, in his political uh wheelhouse in any way being so young so he was probably pretty safe despite court being dangerous for a lot of people especially young women and he might have learned a few things about intrigue about courtly life we certainly think of him as a warrior but he obviously got involved in politics and we'll, we'll touch on more of that later when he's a bit older but he had to start learning some things about you know the game of thrones and and training especially definitely training Let's look a little bit more. Speaking of rivalries, let's look a little more about who he grew up with. There's a couple of interesting possibilities here. Uh, Baylor Breakspear, again, as we said, he was born only a, maybe six months, maybe as few as four months, somewhere in that range before Damon Blackfire. So they grew up together, side by side, potentially the whole for many, many years. 
Now, if Dana had any sort of dislike or rivalry with Princess Mariah, do you think that that could bleed over? I really have a hard time struggling with whether or not these two got along. They had a lot in common, yet they also had some big things that could have put driven a wedge between them. What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think ultimately a friendship was probably outside of the realm of possibilities. There's just too many sort of structural factors, you know, that, that would kind of strain uh, affections. But, you know, I could definitely see, you know, certainly I think there must have been an element of rivalry there. The two guys were just too good, too competitive not to have some element of rivalry. But at the same time, both of them are known for being extremely chivalrous. And that kind of code of behavior would structure relationships between the two of them. That You know, even if you dislike the other person, even if you desperately want to beat them, you have to be gracious in public. You have to be a good sportsman. Yeah, it's true. I my One of my takes on this is I think that the two of them, I have no idea how they got along without outside influences. I would think that Dana and probably Aegon the fourth as well wouldn't have wanted them to get close. But I think Daron would have because that's Daron's yeah. way of doing things. Daron was a, was a peace through personal relationships kind of guy. Like that's what he did with the Great Bastards himself. He kept them close. Later we'll see how that might have backfired on him. But... Given his attitudes, I bet that's what he had in mind. I bet he wanted them to be friends. He may have see, looked in the, you know, seen ahead and expected that this could be problematic if they weren't friends. Yeah, he might have been right. What about some of the other kids at court at the time? Daron's other children after Baylor, Ares, Rhaegal, and Makar. Now, Makar would probably have been a good five, six years younger. These dates are a little loose. We don't know exactly when these guys were born. They were all born within a range of about 171 to 178. Ares and Rhaegal, they don't have... I mean, Rhaegal was kind of crazy. Ares was bookish, not, a, not the warrior type. So Damon and him maybe didn't interact a lot. But Makar, inter, Makar is one I think about. What do you think of Makar and Damon? I mean, it's interesting. You know, I... <laughs> you know, you definitely get the sense that Makar was not someone who, made, who played well with others. Um, <laughs> you know, <Agreed. laughs> someone who definitely would have uh, not been a great sport at losing anything. And, you know, the I think the age gap also would have played a role there that Daemon is, you know, older, has seniority over him, so to speak, uh, certainly would have been bigger and taller and so forth. And I think that of all the people, he'd be the most prideful about like a bastard being put above him in any way. Uh, given his reaction to Bloodraven being made hand later, that's that's part of where I get that guess. So not sure about that, but it seems to be logical. But then there's the really big one. Moving away from the men, there's Daenerys Targaryen, the one that he supposedly loved. Now, interestingly, we don't really know if she loved him. We know that he loved her. That's pretty straightforward. Um, now, it's interesting, right? Actually, or, or do you have a different take on that? You, maybe she. Maybe you don't think he did. Yeah, there's, there's actually a quote from uh, Sospek Martin where he basically says that they, it was a mutual uh, effect. Oh, okay, so it is confirmed. Excellent. Yeah. That's good to know. Uh, now... Obviously, you know, love does not always last. So it's possible that, you know, she loved him for a while and then moved on and he never did. Although, as we'll talk about later, he does marry someone else. So, yeah, he marries someone else. And it's weird that this became a thing. It kind of in retrospect, it's, it's, it's almost like the singers made a bigger deal out of it than anyone else ever did, of course. Singers do that all the time. <laughs> That's nothing new. But it's interesting if you all, anyone who missed the detail that Daenerys and Damon grew up together, they're only two years apart in age. 
roughly. That's pretty major. I understand. You can explain why they you know, they could could have fallen in love at a young age. Well, they almost certainly did. And but like you said, childhood love doesn't always last. <laughs> Another interesting quirk here: Baylor is her nephew, though he's older. Yeah, that's because Aegon the Fourth had his kids so far apart. One wonders if he was protective of her, or if he considered her as a possible bride for himself. Probably not, because. Daron didn't want the incest stuff happening, and so he probably imparted that onto Baylor. And if he did, Daron would have discouraged it. <laughs> so, and it didn't happen. Well, let's talk about some of the other bastards. What about Agor Rivers, who would have been around around 172? Of course, we're going to do a whole episode on him, so we don't need to get too deep into here. But we do want to talk about his potential early influence on Damon and vice versa. What do you? What's your take on that? Well, that's the that's the tricky thing with Agor is that we don't know when he comes back into the picture. Now, I don't get the sense that Agor was exactly a secret, right? Agree. Because of the great bastards, he was the one who Aegon the Fourth actually went and visited away from King's Landing. Right. The Riverlands is not exactly hugely far from the capital either, so you know it's quite possible that uh, Daemon and Agor met at some point. They would have a sort of, a share, potentially a shared sense of grievance and a, sem- a similar identity as great bastards, that Daemon, you know, had probably been told from a very young age that he should have been king. And here is Agor, another bastard who has been wronged, who has been denied his birthright and set aside. So you can definitely see that there might be some mutual sympathies. They're also both very skilled swordsmen and, and, and soldiers in general. So, you know, there's possibly that as well. Appreciate a theory uh, handed over to us by Rainy Targaryen, which was that she believes the best option for Aegor returning to court would be right after Aegon died. And that makes that fits. Yeah, when he's, he's newly legitimized. Right, when he's, he's newly legitimized, and we know that he trained with Fireball. It, when his family was sent away from court, he was too young to have trained with Fireball. Plus, he fought with Bloodraven over Shiera Seastar. He's not going to do that from afar. You don't win. He's not doing that by, by Raven. He's also not encouraging Damon to become king by Raven. That's, that's personal chats right there. Yeah, and, and it requires, you know, in addition to sort of face-to-face communication, you need a, a, a relationship. You need, you know some deep levels of trust to ensure that the other person is not just going to rat you out. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that explains also probably how Bittersteel got to marry his daughter. Yeah, and Agor was about 12 when, yeah. when Aegon yeah, the Fourth. a little died. like a, yeah, a year younger. So he would have been, you know, just the right age to start, to start training in arms. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it really fits nicely. And I, I also don't think that he could have you know, convinced Damon to give his daughter's hand in marriage to him without that kind of connection. So, yeah, it's pretty clear that they at least spend a couple of years together at court, probably the last few years right before the rebellion. He may have, uh, we'll talk about whether, where Bittersteel was when the rebellion actually broke out later. He may have been at court, maybe not, but it's, it's interesting stuff. So, uh, but the final important character who would have grown up around Damon, of course, is Bloodraven himself, Brendan Rivers. He's about five years younger than Damon. So it's interesting. We have a quote from A Song of Ice and Fire much later from Bloodraven where he says there was a brother he loved, a brother he hated, 
and a woman he desired. Well, we know the woman he desired is Sierra Seastar. The brother he hated was clearly Bittersteel. The brother he loved, that's harder. Did he love Damon Blackfire or did he love Daron? They're both his brothers. They're both his half-brothers. And there's good arguments for both. Who do you think he's referring to personally, Stephen? I, I come down on the side that I think it's Damon because it works better with uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, theme of sort of the human heart at war with itself. I mean, ultimately, you know, if he was, if he cared more about uh, Daron to begin with, there's no real conflict. There's no real drama there. But, you know, in a literal civil war of brother against brother, if he's having to go to war against the brother he loves out of a sense of what's right for the the realm, uh, you know, or, you know, possibly just hating Bittersteel that much, I think that that is the more sort of, you know, interesting scenario, especially given how they the two of them very personally clash during the war. Absolutely. Now, of course, we'll be doing an episode on, on Bloodraven. It'll be a lot more on him. So we won't spend too much time on him right now. But there may have been other bastards of Aegon's around at court, or, you know, focus is always on the great bastards, but there were others. There were some who were nameless. Some of them may have been at court. There's some that weren't nameless. We just don't know anything about them besides their names. So these are kind of nameless, faceless others. We can't say much about them, but it's interesting to note that they were probably around. But there was Princess Elena's kids, sister to Dana the Defiant. She had twins with Oakenfist, John and Jane Waters. We don't know their exact ages, but it was sometime between 171 and 176. So as early as just after Damon's birth to around bitter, uh, rather Bloodraven's birth time. The perfect age for them to be there, just a few years younger than Damon. That's the perfect age for them to idolize him as a fellow Waters at court. But you never know. They may have hated him. Now, there would have been other influences around court, not just the kids. There would have been these adults, especially these who, both who would have been charmed by him, by his youthful charisma and his, you know, clear upcomingness. Quentin Baugh, we mentioned, the King's Guard, potentially. Especially this Gwen Corbray fellow, who he's going to fight at the Battle of the Redgrass Field later. And we wonder, did they have a relationship before this epic duel? Did they know each other? That just makes it even more tragic. Well, I mean, they must have known each other. Right, yeah, unless he was a recent addition. Uh, they, they must have known each other, you know, at, at, at a basic level because they would have spent years in, in one another's company because uh, Damon lived at court for, for a lot of his life. But, you know, how close that relationship was, were they friends, were they rivals, were they mere acquaintances? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it works better dramatically if they were friends because then, you know, again, it's that sort of, finding yourself on the opposite end of a battlefield yeah. uh, in a time of civil war thing. I think that works a little bit more uh, dramatically, but we don't know. It's true. George loves to do that, and it would just be kind of heart-wrenching if both Bloodraven and a guy like Wayne Corbury really liked Damon, and they just had to fight him. Bloodraven would have been... He might have had a lot of self-loathing for killing Damon, or maybe he just like, no, I had to do it. That's it. You know, I got to do my job. And same with Corbury. And that, you know, Damon was a chivalrous guy, but we know quite famously that he, when, when he defeated Gwen Corbray, he made sure his body was well cared for and the maester took care of him and that cost him. Is that evidence of their friendship or is that just evidence of his chivalry? No way to know. <laughs> Finally, as far as at court in these early days, just as important, but less noticed, Aegon's corrupt court. We don't know the names of these people, but they were lickspittles, they were flatterers, they told Aegon what he wanted to hear, they gave him, they, they helped him satisfy his desires. And we don't know these people's names, but we know they were there. They're referred to many times. They're important, though, despite not having names for them. 
later when Daron ascends to the throne, he's going to clean house to try to end this corruption. He's going to kick a lot of these guys out of office. A ambitious people don't just stop being ambitious because they get kicked out of office. Who do you think they're going to turn to when Damon Blackfire begins to emerge? Who do you think they're going to support? The guys who got kicked out of office by Daron. Of course, they're going to turn to Damon. Of course, they're going to add their power to his cause. Of course, they're going to encourage him to take the throne. In exchange for getting their positions back, of course. So that's kind of bad for Damon to have characters like that on his side. But there you go. Now, another major issue at court, outside of the people, as far as things going on, Aegon's attempts to invade Dorne. Awkward, not just because of how badly the actual war efforts went, but because his own grandchild, not to mention his son's wife, were Dornish. Daron was a strong prince and was able to prevent some of his father's aggressive plans, but his father resented this and began that famous intrigue. Now, King Aegon, well before it was public knowledge that Daemon was his son, began to threaten to set aside Prince Daron. This would keep the Dornish blood from reaching the throne, but of course we know he's not actually ever going to do it. Now, given this and the near certainty we discussed earlier that Dana hated the Dornish too, well, you've got a boy whose parents both hated Dorn. Though he would later have at least a couple of Dornish allies, Damon himself was quite likely among those who disliked Dorn, or at least he had a lot of people encouraging him to, a lot of role models. So when we see years later how a lot of lords and knights were unhappy with Dornish influence at court and with the king, well, that says a, bit, a lot already, doesn't it? In short, Damon found natural allies with those who shared these feelings, and these early years would have been when these feelings were established and made known. So these guys who, if, if Damon's dislike of the Dornish, if that was a thing at all, that would have gotten attention, and he would have started getting allies from a very early age, people who looked at him as an up-and-comer, someone perhaps to put, throw their ambition behind later. It may have been these people who, who encouraged Aegon to start the rumors of Daron's bastardy, in fact. When we're looking for culprits for that, these guys are prime candidates. What do you think of that, Stephen? Do you think that some of these... Yeah. What, what, or, or any other thing you want to attribute to these shadowy figures? Uh, I mean, well, you know, in addition to the sort of the usual spoilsmanship, I mean, you know, we can guess at who some of these people were. Uh, Butterwell, Lofts... Uh, I can never pronounce that right. Lofsen. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, those are certainly prime candidates. There must have been others because the royal bureaucracy is, is you know, not huge, but it's significant. Um... And, you know, the, the interesting thing, you know, for me is given the sort of ambiguity about when he knew, you know, um, this period must have been very interesting for Damon because if he did, if he was told ahead of time that he was Aegon's son, then every time that rumor comes up, every time that, that Aegon threatens to disinherit his son, it's like he's getting right to the edge of being named the crown prince of Westeros. That's true. That's very and true. And then having that pulled back. Uh, and that, you know, that could really do a number on you. And of course, because of the, the marriage alliances, the nature of legitimacy is very much tied to the politics. That if you are pro-Dorn, then you believe that uh, Daron is legitimate. If you're not, then not. And for Daemon himself, this is extremely personal, right? Because the only thing that anyone could ever say against him is that he's a bastard, right? He's too good at everything else. Yeah. So there's really nothing to insult him with. So the idea that his major rival, right? That, you know, 
because it's not just you know what he himself feels or you know just what his mother says, but everyone is comparing the two of them. Yeah. Uh, it's very it's a it's a public process. So the knowledge you know or the 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 possibility that his rival might be the bastard, and he might be the rightful, you know. <laughs> That, you know, that's a really powerful drive there. And it's intoxicating. And, he, and it's not like, like you said, there's no evidence one way or another. If, he, if he's bought into the story, he'll believe it. There's no, he, he, it's not like there's anything to disprove it. And if he, once he believes it, he takes it because it's partly because it's self-serving and partly because so many peop, other people believe it. There's no way to, to convince him that he's wrong. It's just, it's all hearsay. It's all just opinion. So it's 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 very interesting that way, and I think that's how a lot of other a lot of the supporters on both sides felt. They just were like, no, this is the truth. They just both believe in their version of reality, and there's no nothing to gainsay either side, really. Now, to compound this issue of Dornish hatred from potentially from Damon and certainly from Dana and Aegon, we go back to Daenerys for a moment. Now consider that anti-Dornish sentiment, when you consider that Daenerys was, some people saw her as being sold to the Dornish. So it's not just that Daemon lost Daenerys, it's that he lost her to them, to the hated Dornish. Now the singers, like we said earlier, they played up this relationship perhaps well more than it should have been. And some of them say it's the biggest reason Daemon rebelled. Well, that's taking it too far, clearly. Now the world of Ice and Fire's maesterly point of view downplays the relationship by pointing to how far apart Daenerys' marriage when Damon was 16 or 17, and the Black Fire Rebellion was. He was 26, 27. The truth is probably somewhere in between. It probably did matter. But as we know, there were a lot of reasons Damon rebelled. It wasn't just one thing. Now, for one thing, it's also just not a very good thing cause to get behind. If you're rebelling because you didn't get the girl, that's just not a lot of, that's just not a good political statement to make. It's not like, yeah, follow me. I'm the guy who didn't get the princess he wanted. That's, that's not something you can get behind. Much will be made of how many loved him for his prowess, even at a very young age. But that's also not enough to get behind. So what could these people get behind? What was the, tan- what was the tangible thing that Damon offered that made him legitimate? Besides the claims that Daron was a bastard, there's Damon's claim. It always comes down to having a claim. It's a concept that we needn't get too deep into right now. I think we're all basically familiar with the gist of it. A blood connection to the throne equals a claim to the throne, basically. And this is what most claims are based upon. Damon had two such blood claims, not just because he was Targaryen on both sides, but because both of those sides had direct claims to the throne itself. We've already discussed Dana's claim, but the, the one he had since birth, despite his bastard stature. But for a long time, Damon only had this one. Later, however, he would gain not just a second claim, but a third. His father, of course, ascended to the throne when Damon was about two, but Aegon hadn't yet named him his son. This state of affairs continued for a decade until a singular event resulted in Damon's second claim being revealed and the third materializing almost from thin air. It was something that no one saw coming, yet perhaps, in hindsight, was kind of unsurprising. Now, real quick, I want to mention again the Tower of the Hand publication, A Hymn for Spring. There's a great essay about the Blackfire Rebellions by Stefan Sasa in there. I helped edit it myself. And I think he's got some great takes on some of the background, some of the meta-analysis of it as far as how people felt and what Damon represented and what Daron represented. It's great stuff. And of course, Stephen and I both have essays in Him for Spring as well. Stephen, real quick, a bit of a teaser on yours. Sure. So uh, I have two essays, one of which uh, has to do with the uh, application of Machiavellian theory to 
uh, Song of Ice and Fire and trying to figure out, you know, exactly who wins and who loses in the Game of Thrones. Um, and the other essay is specifically about this difficult question over the realm's finances. Namely, uh, did Robert Baratheon bankrupt the kingdom or did Littlefinger steal Westeros? That's a great subject. And I've read the essays and I like them, so I can vouch for them. And Ashea and I's essay is on the curse of Hall, whether it was real and whether being real or not matters because people believed it to be real. So check out The Hymn for Spring. It's available through historyofwesteros.com. There's a link directly for it. And of course, you'll be not only supporting us, but Stephen and Stefan Sasa and the Tower of the Hand. So part two, Becoming Blackfire. King Aegon knighted Daemon in his 12th year when he won a squire's tourney thereby making him the youngest knight ever made in the time of the Targaryens, surpassing Maegor I, and shocked his court, kin, and council by bestowing upon him the sword of Aegon the Conqueror, Blackfire, as well as lands and other honors. Daemon took the name Blackfire thereafter. The year was 182. What a moment. Aegon had given away dragon eggs largely for sex. <laughs> this is what we mean by it not being so surprising in hindsight that he would give away such a valuable thing... Almost out of nowhere. But still, if anyone saw it coming, they were in the great minority. Or were dealing with some little finger-like shadowy figure who suggested this to him as well. Hey, why not give Blackfire to this guy? That's possible too. We don't know. What, it's interesting to think about where Aegon, was he the idea his own or not? I keep coming back to that. No reason to suspect it though. Again, it's just an idea. No evidence for it. Aegon liked Damon, and he was proud of him. As far as the Westerosi ideal for... Any son, or a son any man would be proud to have, Damon was ideal. He was the ideal ideal other than being a bastard again. Well, the only thing, like Stephen said, that's the only thing people could say against him. So, the, so not only was Blackfire a completely unprecedented gift, it upped the threat level for Prince Daron. The rumors he was the Dragon Knight's son had gotten louder after both the Dragon Knight and Queen Nerys herself were dead. Those were the main defenders of Daron's honor besides Daron himself, and they were gone. And for almost 30 years, though, even bigger factor, perhaps, the dragons had been dead. This made Blackfire more important. For those of you who have read The Princess and the Queen and the other sources on the Dance of the Dragons, Blackfire is mentioned as one of the many symbols possessed by Aegon II, but not even by name. And it, it, it was, it's almost mentioned in passing. The sword wasn't as big deal back then. It was valuable. It was awesome. But it didn't pack nearly as much of a punch as a kingly symbol Back when you got Aenys just giving it to Magor. You know, that's obviously how big a deal could it have been. Why did it become a big deal? Well, partly it's propaganda. Damon's supporters played up the sword in its importance. And also, the other major throwback to Aegon the Conqueror was his crown. And that was lost. So, the sword shared less of the spotlight, so to speak. But, Stephen, I think the biggest part is the recently dead dragons. What do you think about that? Is that you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it hurts that as a symbol goes, right, it's, it is a symbol of not so much kingship as warrior kingship, right? You didn't give him, you know, even if he had it, right, giving Aegon's crown is a statement about political power and sovereignty. The sword is about stepping into a mythos. Mm. Um, and... You know, especially because the big distinction between Daemon and Daron as people was between the scholar and the warrior. This is kind of drawing that line even more sharply. It's like, not only is he just an amazing warrior, he is now carrying the sword of the conqueror <laughs> that signifies, you know, this 
kind of, not just kingship, but this kind of kingship that a lot of people in court feel is lacking, mm-hmm. right? You know, that, you know, maybe Aegon had it once, right, but doesn't have it again. You know, doesn't have it anymore. He's gotten too old. Yeah, I like Daron that. Is, Daron's never going to have that. No, <laughs> never. <laughs> and... So the the dragons were the real symbol of might, too. That's why I like to think about it. When the Targaryens, back when they had the dragons, when they fought against non-Targaryens, it was dragon versus human. When Targaryens fought Targaryens, it was dragon versus dragon. Huge claws, massive jaws, flame breath, etc. What is a sword against, you know, massive jaws, huge claws, and flame breath? (laughs) Even an awesome sword like Blackfire. It just doesn't mean as much with that kind of firepower around, pun intended, of course. But in the era of Daemon, Daron, Aegon the Unworthy, dragons were a thing of the past. Everything was human versus human. And when the best weapons available are made of steel, having a vastly superior sword made of vastly superior steel, well, that makes more sense now, doesn't it? Daemon was the best warrior of his era, wielding the best sword available. That's pretty pretty badass. (laughs) So things progressed quickly for him. At some point, his father also arranged a marriage for him. It was a political marriage with war in mind, and it probably further pushed Damon into the anti-Dornish court, or side of things, if he wasn't already firmly entrenched there. The king had lost his royal fleet to storms, so this marriage to Rohan, the, who was probably the daughter of the Archon of Tyrosh, this was probably meant to bolster that weakness by giving him an alliance with someone who had a big navy again, should he wish to make another attempt at invading Dorn, which was pretty important because the Dornish problem is probably the existence of Dorn and this this rivalry and the political situation was probably one of the main things, if not the main thing, preventing Aegon from setting Daron aside in favor of Daemon. Because, of course, if he did that, it would mean war. But if Dorn was taken out of the picture, there would be no threat of war and he'd be free to do the legitimizations. What do you think about that, Stephen? You think that's part of what Aegon had in mind with that marriage? You think it's possible someone else gave him that idea? Or is it just something else entirely? I think, you know, most likely it was about the power politics. He wanted the fleet. He probably also wanted money uh, because he spent it like water. Um, and, you know, you also get the sense uh, somewhat that he, the, that Aegon Fourth rather, treated marriages, or betrothals at least, with a certain amount of flippancy flippancy, that they were political game pieces to be moved around and, and sort of changed around when it suited him. So it, we can't even, I think, be that clear how much of a lasting alliance this was supposed to be, or whether it was just sort of, you know, in the moment, I need this fleet. What do I need to get this fleet? Okay, I've got this fleet now. That's a good point. And it's, it's certainly, and you, it, it's a great segue because it's true. This was a betrothal, not a marriage. It was it, it was a become a, it did become a marriage eventually. It was consummated. Damon and Rohan had seven sons plus at least two daughters. So, but in the meantime, they had to wait until they were old enough to marry. And before that happened, King Aegon died in 184. So the it was soon after that they were married, but it didn't quite happen before that. Now another thing I want to throw out there just before we get to Aegon's death is that it's also possible that Aegon had something else in mind, which is that he wanted to, well, 
It's not clear what he wanted to do, but it's interesting that the Archon of Tyrush would have even agreed to this marriage in the first place. He agrees to marry this, this daughter of his to a bastard, even though as a royal bastard. Still, that's interesting. It could be something about the Tyrashi. Maybe they don't care about bastards as much. Maybe that's not a thing for them. But it's a little curious. And it's also interesting because, as we'll see a little later, we may as well bring it up now, it was not, there was, normally, it's the bride's family that pays the dowry. But that was not the case in this. Daron paid the dowry that Aegon had arranged, which is interesting. Maybe that's because he was a bastard. Maybe that was the deal there. I don't know. But anyway, while he was dying, and to be sure, he knew he was dying, he did that, that thing he did, that thing that had he not done it, would have probably removed him from the category of worst Targaryen king ever discussions. He'd be relegated to the really bad category instead, but not the worst. The thing, of course, that I'm referring to is legitimizing all his bastard children. So, Stephen, right away, what do you think happened? Like, what was the initial reaction, the shock, the surprise? you think they tried to dissuade him, maybe? Like, what, you really want to do that? Are you sure? I mean, I think he probably kept it a surprise. It was sort of, mm. you know, a last shot fired, sort of thing. <laughs> You know, screw you to everyone who I didn't like. But the problem is, the moment it's public, you can't really undo it. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is the nature of a royal proclamation, is that in saying a thing is so, you have made it so. And, and given that this is ultimately all about kind of perceived status, right? The moment that everyone hears that someone's been legitimized, legitimized they're, they're effectively legitimized. Yeah. Whether the, you know... All the I's are dotted and the, the T's are crossed. doesn't really matter as much. Hmm, that's true. The legitimization, it's interesting. Now, the reasons are different for each individual. But Agor, Bloodraven, Shiera, all of them were legitimized. But none of them took the name Targaryen. There, like I said, there's different reasons for that. But in Damon's case, he was already established as Blackfire. That was a name. That was his name. He had a castle already. He had the sword. It doesn't really make sense to take the name Targaryen when you've got yourself established as your as your own thing. Plus... It might be a bit more threatening to to do that. It's like, well, I'm if, if Damon had called himself Damon Targaryen, he would be directly challenging Daron's authority. I think it also makes him stand out more. It's sort of saying, I'm not just a Targaryen. I'm the one who's got the damn sword. <laughs> I agree. So now, though, the big thing, Aegon is dead and Daron is king. And that has a large impact because all that anti-Dornish sentiment that was boiling up, well, now... It's going to come to the fore even more because the Dornish are that much closer to the throne. Daron's family is at court. They already were, but there's now. He's got counselors that are Dornish. He's got more and more people that the standard Westerosi culture don't like. So, but Daron, he knew, he recognized this and he used his methods, friendship, peace, generosity, to try and keep things together. He did what he could to keep the great bastards close, treating them honorably and continuing the incomes that the king had bestowed on them. He paid the dowry that Aegon had promised to the Archon of Tyrosh, thereby seeing his half-brother Daemon Blackfire wed to Rohan of Tyrosh as Aegon had desired. For all that Sir Daemon was only four and ten. On their wedding day, he granted Daemon a tract of land near the Blackwater with the right to raise a castle. Some said he did such things to assert his rule and legitimacy over the great bastards and others because he was kind and just. But whatever the truth, such efforts sadly proved in vain. This is another thing we talked about briefly earlier. The marriage, this marriage happened well before Daenerys went south to marry Prince Maron Martell. 
So it's even weirder that he was upset about this or that the rumors were that he was upset about it. Unless we credit these rumors that Damon thought he could marry twice. A different tale claims that Damon was not so much opposed to wedding Rohan of Tyrosh as he was convinced that he could follow in the footsteps of Aegon the Conqueror and Megor the Cruel and have more than one bride. Aegon might have even promised to indulge him in this. Some of Blackfyre's partisans later claimed this was the case. But Daron was of a different mind entirely. What do you think about that? Does, is is anything? Any, do you credit that rumor at all? It, in one hand, it seems like it could be true because Damon was just so pumped up; his ego may have been so big that he believed he was could do this. On the other hand, it's so against the worship of the Seven; it's so not chivalrous. And well, on the other hand, it is very Targaryen. You know the, you know you got to think he's got Aegon's sword, right? He is a descendant of Aegon. Aegon had multiple wives. Um, you know, certainly his mother, um, you know, was kind of a quasi-sister wife, uh, with, you know, her two sisters in Baylor, um, even though she was the sort of the technically supposed to be the bride, there was sort of a commonality there. You know, so it, it's possible that, you know, all of this emphasis on Targaryen tradition and purity of blood, that he, he may have gone all in for that. It's also possible that he thought that maybe... Uh, Rohan could just go away <laughs> uh, one way or another. We don't really know. But it, it certainly suggests that he thought very highly of himself. Very. Um, if he did, yeah, it's true. And I, and I can totally buy that because, like I said, he had people around him constantly telling him how great he was. And, yeah. <laughs> That's going to have an effect even on someone who's stubborn and very uh, self-assured. But the... This marriage would prove to be problematic for King Daron and those that followed him on the Iron Throne. Over the years, Tyrosh and the Blackfire cause were aligned several times. Daemon's descendants spent quite a bit of time there. Uh, Bitter Steel spent quite a lot of time there. But the more immediate effect was the making of said descendants. Daemon and Rohan would have, like I said earlier, seven sons and at least two daughters. When Daemon was only 14, the first two of these seven sons arrived. Twins named after his father and uncle that he was said to be like, Aemon, the other being Aegon. Notably Targaryen names, too, which is unlike what Baylor chose for his sons. Baylor Breakspear, that is, because Baylor the Blessed had no sons. Valar and Mataris, these are like quasi-Targaryen names. I don't know where they come from, but they're not traditional Targaryen names. And you wonder if that fits in with the whole Targaryen pure blood versus Dornish kind of meta struggle that was happening at court at this time. What do you think about that? You think the names tell us anything or possibly. I mean, you know, the Valar and Mataris, it's it's a little bit tricky to figure out where those names are coming from. Yeah. You know, I, I think they were probably Valyrian names in general, but just not that associated with the family. Yeah. Uh whereas, you know, on the on the flip side of it, Aegon and Amon, he's being very, very clear, right? You know, my kids are named after kings. So as an aside, it's interesting that shortly after the Redgrass Field, or just before, around the same time, that eventually Makar named two of his kids, Aemon and Aegon as well. It's almost like, well, no, we're taking that back. <laughs> or it was just traditional. I don't know. Having kids, though, is a big deal. And no doubt this enhanced Damon's burgeoning fame and popularity. It's like Twin Sons is like the jackpot, you know, from for Westerosti. Uh, you know, 
perceptions. And surely some of this took it as a sign of godly favor. Like, the gods have given Damon twin sons. Especially seven sons. Yeah, the seven sons. Yeah, eventually when it got yeah. to that point. I mean, dang. That's, that's like, what kind of a sign is that, right? Surely some people really built up that angle. Now, it'd be interesting to see their dynamic, though. We don't know hardly anything about Rohan. Was she an ambitious one, too? Was she also pushing him for the throne? Or was she in awe of him? We don't know if she was even older than him or not. I, I don't know. Well, hopefully at least a little bit older, given how many kids she's having and how quickly. Yes, because if he had a kid at 14 and she was younger, then that means she was 12 or 13, which is like, ooh. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time, but yeah, anyway. So, but like we said, yeah, so Damon is only 14 at this point, and the rebellion is still many years away. Still plenty of time for him to gain popularity, establish himself further, and to play fight. <laughs> more tournaments, more, there weren't real battles for him to fight in, but people care about tournaments, well, outside the north anyway. A semi-famous example of this came a few years later, at Princess Daenerys' wedding. Prince Baylor won the name Breakspear at the age of 17, following his famous victory at Princess Daenerys wedding tourney. He defeated Damon Blackfire in the final tilt. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> a few things came out of that quote. Baylor was also gaining fame. Let's not forget that. He wasn't as flashy, but he was legit. He was actually in the line of succession. So that's a pretty big deal. So this is a good t- chance for us to briefly re-speculate on the rival between those two. How big a deal was this, too, just from their respective followers, this victory at a tournament, especially... Daenerys's wedding tournament, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah, I was going to say there there's an interesting symbolism here. You know, I'm thinking back to the the tournaments that went on before the Dance of the Dragons, where there was all kinds of sort of interpersonal dynamics being played out in terms of who had who, whose favor, who won, who lost. Um, so you know, definitely, I'm guessing that Damon was very unhappy about losing. I mean, especially the fact that he fought in that tournament and made it all the way to the final tilt does suggest that he was planning to make some sort of a kind of Rhaegar-like statement about, you know, his relationship with Daenerys. And to get beaten by Baylor, you know, at that moment, that really must have stung. He must have hated it so much. <laughs> so did his supporters. They're like, damn it. He got lucky, you know, ah, Damon's horse slipped, or I don't know. Well, especially given given the name uh, Breakspear. Yeah, there must have been several. Well, it's possible that it went to a split decision. I mean, literally, a split decision. Oh, because interesting Because one idea. of the ways that you settle jousts is, you know, obviously if one person gets knocked off, but we've seen many cases where if they're just tied, basically and they're smashing lance after lance, the king decides. Well, if the king is Daron... <laughs> Who's he going to pick? Yeah. You know, so I could, I could, you know, unless Damon got unseated, I could definitely see a sense in which, you know, certainly the people around Damon might have been telling him, you got robbed. Yeah. You really won that. You know, you should have been the champion. This guy, Baylor, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's all mouth. He's all reputation. That's awesome. I hadn't thought about the possibility of it being a decision. That's a great idea. Well, in any case, it would have helped Baylor's popularity winning that, regardless of whether it was a decision or not. But but its popularity, it didn't work the same for Baylor that it did for Daron or for Damon. It certainly worked. He was very popular, no doubt. But 
Too many men looked upon Baylor's dark hair and eyes and muttered that he was more Martell than Targaryen, even though he proved a man who could win respect with ease and was as open-handed and just as his father. Knights and lords of the Dornish marshes, marshes, marches came to mistrust Daron and Baylor as well, and began to look more and more to the old days, when Dornishmen were the enemy to fight, not rivals for the king's attention or largesse. And then they would look at Damon Blackfire, grown tall and powerful, half a god among mortal men, and with the conqueror's sword in his possession, and wonder. Part 3. The Living Legend. That quote really shows you why he was seen as a living legend, doesn't it? <laughs> Damon's now in his early 20s, and people were thinking of him as half a god among mortal men. That gives you an idea of the kind of hero worship, the cult of personality, shall we say, that accompanied this man. Damon had appeal to a wide variety of people, from highborn to commoner. He was a lot like a rock star. But more than that, he was the perfect knight. Skill and chivalry blended together. But more than that, he represented ideals that were commonly held in tradition-worshipping Westeros. Damon embodied the attitudes many of the noble houses of Westeros have upheld for eons. So let's discuss Damon's appeal as a way to settle old scores, the way things were, the old days. And you got to keep in mind, the old days had been the old days for thousands of years. And this new Daron king was just trying to change all that in just a few years. That's hard. That's, it's hard to break from tradition like that. These guys don't like peace. What do you take? What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, in I think at a, at a fundamental level, right, as we can see, uh, Damon acquires a constituency of marcher lords and knights who their very identity is wound up in fighting the Dornish. You know, the, the war may have ended between princes, but, you know, when, when the raiders come every year to, you know, grab, you know, sheep or cattle or, or whatever, you know, that doesn't really matter very much to the marcher lords. So immediately he's got <laughs> this, this kind of anti-Dornish, pro kind of military, pro chivalry, uh, coalition building around him. Uh, and you know, there's sort of both a push and a pull factor, right? They don't like what Daron and Baylor represents, and they really like what he represents uh, because he's seen as kind of a throwback to Aegon, to this old warrior kingship model. Yeah, which which they really like and which they really appreciate. You're right. It's not only that that they don't like Daron's peace overtures. They don't want to lose their identity as a warrior culture or as warrior houses or as defenders of the marches or, or what have you. It's not just that they hate that. It's that, like you say, Damon is that. He is the opposite of that. He is the one that represents that, that warrior nature and that, you know, fighting <laughs> thing. Daron, if Daron had his way, there would be no, no one to fight. <laughs> Although the only ones to fight would be overseas. Dar Doran was the last frontier, the last combative frontier in Westeros at that time. And Daron was trying to take that away. Our modern sensibilities are like, yeah, take that away. Don't fight anymore. Don't just maintain this state of thousands of years of war. But it goes to show that how much these, these, these houses' identities were wrapped up in this and how much they did not want to lose it. The marcher lords like Karen, Selmy, and Swan, they hate the Dornish. They've been fighting them for so long. They did not want to stop doing that just because this king said so. And on top of that, of course, 
We have those same shadowy figures we've been going back and forth referencing them. The ones that Daron kicked out of office or otherwise pissed off. Now, the problem with that is that these are scummy, ambitious types. They're not the chivalrous type that Damon himself is. They may act chivalrous around Damon and project chivalry because that's Damon's cause and they want to be in line with the, you know, the campaign ideals. But behind that, they're working for their own ambition for sure and poisoning the well, so to speak. So, and I wonder how far back some of these guys were, were realizing the opportunity they had with Damon. I mean, certainly, you know, as far back as when the rumors about uh, Damon, uh, excuse me, about Daron were being spread during Aegon's reign. It sure is annoying that these two guys' names are so similar. <laughs> it's always <laughs> to say Damon yeah. when you mean Daron. And there's so many Darons. And <laughs> it's just, ah, that's the way. It's funny. Real history works that way, too. <laughs> it's just another feature of this fake history that makes it more feel more authentic. It has the same confusing, repetitive names. Yeah. <laughs> now, as far as Damon's appeal goes, though, it didn't work that way everywhere. The Iron Islands... They probably didn't care as much about Damon. They didn't care about chivalry. They don't care about worship of the seven. It's having him having seven sons is, you know, they care. It might have been cool for them to think, oh, he's man enough to have seven sons. They didn't care about the fact that it was seven specifically. And but the North, same thing. The North, I don't think the North cared much about Damon. I think that because for one thing, the North doesn't care much about knighthood. They don't care that he was handsome. <laughs> they don't care about his tournament successes. They might not mind as much that he's a bastard. What do you think? What do you think the North's attitude towards Damon was? We, we, for all we know, they weren't involved in the Blackfire Rebellions at all. So we're trying to come up with why. I, I, I think that ultimately, ultimately the North is a lot more pragmatic about those you know, elements of, of knighthood. You know, they like a strong fighter, but given that they're so far away from everything... All right, also, you know, you know with, the, with one significant, significant exception, I don't think a Northman has ever... You know, had ever really fought a Dornishman before. They're just way too separated from that whole conflict. So they're just yeah, other than the Dance of the Dragons. So I, they're yeah, just you know they're not emotionally primed um, in the same way that you know the the Reach and the Stormlands and the Riverlands and the Westerlands. Uh, you know how those houses are kind of wired almost. Uh, for, you know, this kind of conflict. Yeah. Now, getting back closer to people that were around him, the Kingsguard, that would be, some of them probably really struggled with this because, you know, the Kingsguard are supposed to be loyal and, and the long history of the Kingsguard shows that the vast majority of them have, were loyal to their king. But there's always the Jamie Lannisters and the other types that felt like they had to switch sides. We have no evidence that any Kingsguard took Damon's side in this. But it's still interesting to consider that some of them might have been torn. Some of them might have hesitated to do their duty when it came to Damon because they liked him. They grew, some of them grew up with him at court. And, you know, that's a hard thing to, to, to set aside is that friendship, these personal relationships. Especially a guy like the influence of a guy like Fireball, who was supposed to get a Kingsguard spot. Aegon promised him one, but there was no spot during his life. And then when Daron's kingship came around, he gave it to Willem Wilde instead. Uh, so is, did he, he may have made it. He certainly made an enemy there. Daron did. He may have, that enemy may have already been there. <laughs> Fireball may have been kind of a natural enemy regardless of what happened. What about a situation like a character named Red Tusk, who we all, both of us believe that he was a Craycall knight. He was someone who has fought for Damon. But there was a Kingsguard named Roland Craycall. 
what a conundrum that would be. And I do believe it's possible that we had houses that probably were split with their allegiances. What do you think about that? Do you think there were a lot of cases like that? I think there were, I think there were quite a few. I mean, it definitely seems to be a running theme in these sort of Westerosi civil wars of literally brother against brother. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you got to think, you know, okay, so if Roland Krakal is, joins the Kingsguard, that means that someone else has to be the Lord of Krakal. Yeah. If he's also a famous knight, that creates a certain amount of tension and yeah. rivalry, right? Which of us, you know, ultimately, when it comes down to it, which is the better man? Likewise, Fireball versus William Wilde. You know, there's got to be this kind of tension about, well, did you actually get this position because you were the better knight or because, you know, Daron was playing politics? So you can definitely sort of see that there. And, you know, we're told, and this is, I think, what makes this complicated, is that Daemon had special appeal with knights. Yes. And some of the best knights of the age. So that, I, I think it's sort of the kind of the aficionado thing. It's like, mm. you know, he, he's like that kind of the jazz man that real jazz aficionados are just crazy yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, oh yeah, there's a lot of great knights. But if you really know you're fighting, if you're one of those <laughs> like Jamie Lannister types who can, who just gushes about, you know, painting in red, only in red. <laughs> You know, that to see Daemon is like, okay, that's the real thing. That's what mm. I want. He was one um, of them. Yeah, he so, was... Yeah. That makes... Yeah, it's true. And as his appeal grew and his popularity, so did his power. Those things are somewhat correlated in Westeros and in other places. Apparently, he challenged Daron on some of his royal policies and decisions, which says a lot. And even though, even though Daron was a nice guy, openly disagreeing with the king to his face is not something regular folk or even regular lords do. Whether this emboldened his followers or whether they emboldened him is tough to answer. But either way, it got worse. So let's talk about Damon's political skills uh, or lack thereof, potentially. He, there, these disagreements on policy, of course, some of them surely revolved around Dorne and things like that. Yeah. But what about other things? I'm sure there was tension regarding other people just coming out and saying that Daron's a bastard or that Damon was more worthy. Like, apparently that was just said openly, partly because Daron didn't crack down hard on that kind of talk. So do you think Daron was too soft on these things or do you think it just didn't, he had a good plan that just didn't work? Well, it's certainly the problem is it didn't work. It festered. Um, and you get the sense from the quote from, from Martin about the decision to, um, to marry Daenerys into yeah. House Martell. That part of the reason that happened is that the two of them had been clashing repeatedly over public policy and that people in King's Landing were taking sides between them and that one of the things that Daron did not want to have happen is to give Daemon a massive shot of legitimacy. You know, you give him that Targaryen marriage, it's going to make him, once again, have an even stronger claim to the throne. You don't want that. So... You know, it definitely seems like as a as a kind of a uh, a conflict goes, it was not one sided. This was not just Damon being an asshole because he's an <laughs> asshole. It's these are two guys who recognize that there's a certain zero sum game when it comes to legitimacy and authority in court. Right on. And let's jump ahead to something that he did while he was king to get an idea of the type of politician he was. Now, of course, you have to take this with a grain of salt because we don't know that this was his idea. As, as we've said many times, he had plenty of advisors and it's impossible to know whether 
some of these policies were his own ideas or whether they were suggestions pushed on him by his followers, his, his inner circle. He makes his own coins during his rebellion. He mints his own coins. So, Stephen, I know you have a lot to say about the coin issue, so fire away. Yeah, I think we can learn a lot about Damon's qualities as a politician from the fact that he, he minted his own coins. You know, all too often I think it's kind of easy to dismiss Damon as a mindless jock, as someone who just sort of cavalierly charged his way into glory and death. But I think this coin shows that Damon was also someone who understood institutional power, that seniorage, literally the right of the sovereign to make coins, and taxation, i.e. that you can compel people to use this coin to pay their taxes and to buy good, you know, goods and services, these things are really important in terms of being able to equip and supply armies and buy mercenaries. And during the, you know, as we'll talk about during the Redgrass episode, he needed those things. If you're going to start a rebellion, you know, and this is the kind of the amazing thing, right? He starts a rebellion not as a Lord Paramount, as a landed <laughs> knight. Yeah, that's unusual. You know, <laughs> at the lowest, yeah, at really the lowest point on the feudal totem pole, and he almost gets away with it. Well, in order to do that, you really need a strong financial, you know, foundation. Likewise, I think it also shows an understanding of the power of symbolism. Obviously, he already had Blackfire. He kind of knew that symbols were a big deal. But the thing about coins is, if people are willing to take them, if they're willing to pay taxes with them, if the lords accept those as payment for taxes and then use them to pay their own taxes, that means at a certain basic level... You are the king. Mm -hmm. if, if you think about it, for 90% of the population, right, they're never going to see the king. They're never going to interact with the king. Chances are no royal decree is ever really going to change their lives that much unless there's a war. But coins are that one aspect, are that one thing that really kind of act as a, a connection between the individual subject and their, and their monarch. And Damon understood that in a way that no other royal pretender in A Song of Ice and Fire understood it. I mean, Renly, who understood symbolism, you know, we saw that with the, the pageants and the tourneys, but he didn't really understand institutions. Rob, who at least, you know, at least tried to make his own coins, but again, that was a, a suggestion from outside, you know, that came from the Mandarin. Joffrey, Balon, they didn't really seem to get this. It is really quite interesting that one of the first things he does when he raises his banners is to set up a royal bureaucracy. Yeah, it's really neat. He, he, he was in it for the long run. This wasn't a go straight for the throat, take out the king and then take the throne. This was a set and this is a campaign. It was a long series of getting followers, you know, trying to swing people to his side of the cause, getting the neutrals on his side. And, and like you said, establishing himself, like saying, look, I've got coins. I'm, a, I'm legit, you know. He crowned himself, did all these things. And there's another recurring theme here that the Blackfire propagandists, I'll call them, drew attention to. It seemed to be effective because it was true in a sense. It may not be true how much it mattered, but it was true on the surface, which is that Daron was not martial at all. He had a weak body. Along with his Dornish court, which gave greater rights to women, which is very relevant here. That's not very traditional. That's progressive. And his looks or his books, rather, and his looks, <laughs> they found a lot of fodder. Basically, a lot of things considered feminine or not masculine about Daron were whispered or flat-out trumpeted. And this eroded his authority a bit in favor of Damon. 
What could Daron do about it? Well, it's hard to go after such a popular figure. Daron wasn't the kind of guy to play dirty either, so he was left with weathering the storm and seeing what happened. As we detailed in the last Blackfire episode, the big shift was the addition of Doran not only to the realm, but to court. They advised, entertained, were part of the family. More fodder for propaganda. Though again, we don't know how Damon himself felt. Meanwhile, Damon Blackfire was built up as some kind of arch-alpha male aligned to the ideals of chivalrous Westeros. One mark of manhood in Westeros' fathering sons, of course. It's ridiculous to us. But again, he had seven. That's huge. But what's funny about that is Daron had four. And over time, Daron's sons fought Damon's sons several times. And Daron's sons were the ones that kept coming out ahead. <laughs> they would just, Daron, Damon's would just keep losing. But back to where we were. That's way in the future. We're in the 190s now, the early 190s, and the rebellion will break out in 196. These same ambitious men, the nameless ones, along with Bittersteel, Fireball, possibly Dane the Defiant, and surely some others, pushed him to become king. At first, we hear that he maybe entertained the idea because it propped up his ego, his vanity. He liked it. He liked being told how great he was. But it just kept going. And maybe that's what they knew. Maybe his supporters realized they were on something. They're like, look, if we just keep pushing him, eventually he'll do it. He likes being told this. All I got to do is keep pushing him and he'll get to that breaking point. Is that kind of what, how you feel about it? Or do you think there was something else? If we're getting close to the point where he actually rebels and will review the thing that was the trigger. But what do you think about this? It took so long. And there were so many people pushing him for so long. Yeah. That, that is the tricky thing. Because there's a lack of a catalyst, because there's a lack of a sort of, uh, you know, an incident that sets everything off, and because we don't know how long the preparations went on for. Did, you know, had, had he been planning this ever since the marriage? Had he been planning this ever since, I don't know, he had a really bad fight with, with uh, Daron over something? We don't know. But clearly, you know, at some point he was getting very, very close to this. And the interesting question is what is what he thought the next step was. Yes, really, it's true. And that we'll get into a little bit more in the Redgrass Field episode, like what his plans were, what he was thinking, and how he would, you know, how he proceeded. Because we're actually going to see some of those things put into, into play. But in the meantime, Damon's, whether directly from him or his followers, mostly from his followers, I assume, it was basically this kind of, I'm the best propaganda and it was rooted in some truth. He, in a lot of ways, he kind of was the best, depending on how you define the best. I'm not saying he was the best king, but in, in the, th the things that Damon's followers cared about, he was number one in those regards. He was really a chivalrous guy. That doesn't seem to be an act, or, or he was an incredible actor. <laughs> so as much as I harp on Damon's reasons for rebelling, I'm guessing his men were far better behaved than most. It's real hard to be that drawn to someone's charisma and not emulate their most conspicuous traits. So, well, except those ambitious men, of course. <laughs> they would at least have to pretend to be decent men, though, right? Maybe not, actually. <laughs> so that's kind of good, though, right? That Damon's inspiring knightly virtues in his followers? Well, maybe not, because the guy who was king was already a very virtuous, ethical, fair capable man of peace he wasn't perfect but w what was the need for a change in that regard it wasn't it wasn't about those things it wasn't about being more chivalrous it was about hating the dornish being ambitious and a lot of other things so let's look at how that went though because we're about ready for damon to declare himself 
First, a shout out to Dagron, Marshal of the Axe and Captain of the Red Tide, a sellsword company whose motto is resistance is futile. He is a Patreon supporter of ours. Now, if Patreon isn't for you, you can always go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the donate button to send us a silver stag or two through PayPal. You can even request a shout out like that one. Just let us know. Part four, the black dragon arises. There was no final insult, no great wrong that led Damon Blackfire to turn against King Daron. Nor do we know exactly when plans to do so to actually do the usurping got underway. So let's discuss that and the convergence of all these factors that led to it. First of all, there's these questions of legitimacy remaining. Another quote here. Others still named him Daron Falseborn, repeating the calumny that Aegon the Unworthy himself was said to have circulated in the later years of his reign, that he had been sired not by the king, but by his brother, the Dragon Knight. Funny how rumors stick around when so many are resting such hopes on people believing it. So, and of course, those rumors got stronger uh, the later, you know, the, the closer we got to the rebellion, I would assume. So what do you think about some of these things? We have these, we have this, the factional disputes carried over from his father's administration. That's a big one. Yeah. We'll start there. Yeah. And especially the way that the, the factional disputes kind of play into these regional differences that, you know, the, these factions are not evenly spread across the whole of Westeros, that they're very concentrated in the reach in the stormlands in the Dornish marches, you know, that gives it a real kind of, um, uh, an intensity, yeah. you know, people, you know, because there's a concentration, that means that a lot of people are around other people who agree with them most of the time. Uh, so they, they begin to see their position as more self-evidently true and less up for yeah. debate. Now, so that's, those are, those are obviously all huge factors. Many others that we've covered already. We've got Bittersteel pushing him. We've got the Dornish situation. We've got Daenerys' situation. We've got... The propaganda against Daron. There's so many things, yet none of these things were the trigger. None of them. They were all reasons why things were boiling up. But the actual trigger still is a little bit yet to come. We're almost there. If the stories are true, Damon was planning on crowning himself, but Bloodraven discovered it. Somehow. <laughs> we don't know exactly how. And he was outed. And we'll get to those details in a minute. But what do we think Damon's actual plan was for taking the throne? Was it a palace coup, do you think? Or a plan to go out and marshal some armies and, and come out? That might have been too easy to detect. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of possibilities. A palace coup obviously kind of appeals to the kind of marshal, you know, just do it, none of the shilly-shallying. Um, on the other <laughs> hand, you know, you do need to present a good image. You know, he doesn't want to be seen as a Magor. He wants to be seen as a rightful king. Um, so it is quite possible that he thought that, for example, uh, you know, he would bring forward some sort of proof about Daron being a bastard. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, there was always, you know, given all of these rumors about, uh, you know, Aegon the Fourth disinheriting uh, uh, his his son. You know, maybe there was a, a draft will made at some point that disinherited him that he could produce. Uh, wow. It's possible that he would have wanted to prove this at a trial by combat. 
Uh, oh, Damon's followers would love that idea, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know about the rest of the realm, but Damon's followers were like, yes, <laughs> you know, trial by combat. It could have been uh, a trial of seven. That's another kind of, you know, again, traditional, old school, martial, uh, you know, religious way of doing things. Um, yeah. It's possible that he could have wanted to call a great council. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, yeah, I, it's possible the great council. I'm a little bit down on that idea because you know, he seemed to want to. Have, force the issue rather than letting people decide but it's definitely possible definitely Uh, especially if he thought his support was popular enough and that would be a peaceful way to take the throne instead of fighting for it yeah definitely possible but probably lower on the list of possibilities so what apparently happened was daron was told by blood raven that this plan was going to happen now, we'll talk about that more in the Blood Raven episode, but it's possible Blood Raven made this up. It's possible, or he exaggerated the, the threat to make, to make Daron take action. He may have been tired of Daron just letting the situation develop, getting worse and worse. It's like, hey, you need to take action. I'm going to trick you into taking action. We'll talk about that possibility more in the Blood Raven episode. I like that idea. So keep it in the back of your head. But for now, just sticking to the surface, Damon's arrest was ordered. Either Fireball was there when it happened, or he knew of the pending arrest through his own kind of background channels. And in what must have been a really epic scene that I hope we get to see somehow. I don't know where we get to see it. Fireball helped Damon escape the Kingsguard, the Red Keep, and presumably the city. That, that I, There was probably some fighting involved. We don't hear about anyone getting killed. But I bet swords were drawn. You know, and and uh, it, may have, it probably wasn't like Barristan's escape, because Barristan was faced with, you know... Gold cloaks who were kind of, you know, out of his, you know, well beneath him. This was yeah. This this is taking no chances. Yeah, <laughs> and but you wonder what we talked about before. Maybe the Kingsguard hesitated a little. Maybe they were like, "Uh, do we have to?" <laughs> or maybe one or two of them did. Some of them were like, "Finally, we're gonna get rid of this stupid traitor." Maybe Gwen Corbray was one of the guys that was sent to arrest Damon, and maybe Gwen Corbray felt that he failed. And maybe that's why he sought Damon out on the red grass field later to avenge his failure. I like that idea. I have nothing to back it up other than conjecture, but it sounds cool to me. Now, who else? Let's talk about who else would have gone with Damon. Who escaped with him? Damon and Fireball, of course, got out. If Bittersteel was there, maybe he got out with them. What if Damon, if Dana the Defiant was around, I don't know if she would have escaped. Uh, Yeah. You know, certainly his, uh, Damon's family were probably, you know, the, the, the tricky thing is we're not exactly sure where his, his, his lands, Damon's lands were. Um, you know, we're told that they were on the Blackwater. That's probably too close to the city to actually stay. Uh, but he definitely got his family out. I mean, cause we know from, uh, the case of, um, uh, Damon the second that, you know, they were living fairly close to the Cockshaws. Yes. And, you know, while I don't really have much of a basis of this besides just counting which houses supported him, I think he went to the Reach. I agree. I think that was the only... I mean, Stormlands are way too close to the, the capital. Barath with Barath, he's probably being loyal to Daron as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's... You know, the Reach is big. There's a lot of places that you can hide out. There's a lot of his supporters are there. They're not going to be you know, friendly to the Dornish. Yeah, it's the heart of chivalry, too. I would imagine exactly. that the, the, his supporters very largely came from the Reach, like a very high percentage. He probably had more support there than any other region. 
Um, and like you said, the, the, the reach is very full of the Dornish xenophobia, or out, you can call it racism if you want. And they're not big fans of peace. They're, they love fighting, they love tournaments, they love chivalry and all those things, and Daron was a threat to all that. But, despite that, despite all this talk of chivalry, ugh, it's, it doesn't necessarily fit in some regards. This is kind of interesting, I think. As Damon escaped, you know, words are, are wind, of course. There's lots of people who said they'd support him, who indicated they probably would. They were backing him. Who amongst Damon's supporters would actually rise for him when it came to war? Ultimately, well, a lot. <laughs> In our episode on the war itself, we'll list as many as we can. We're going to offer some conjectures, some good theories on which houses fought for which side. But for now, old Sir Eustace will tell us why he did so. Why, lad? You ask me why? Because Damon was the better man. The old king saw it too. He gave the sword to Damon. Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror, the blade that every Targaryen king had wielded since the conquest. He put that sword in Damon's hand the day he knighted him, a boy of 12. We get the sense a lot of people felt this way about Damon, about the sword, about what it meant, about being the better man. But how honest were they being with themselves? This is not a good reason to rebel, not in my opinion anyway. There was no tyranny, no oppression. Damon wasn't treated unfairly even, arguably. There's a there's good more, here's, here's another good opportunity for a comparison to A Song of Ice and Fire proper. But Damon has several things in common with Robert Baratheon, as we said at the beginning of this episode. In this spot, he's more like Renly, a charismatic guy with a claim clearly trumped by a close relative. For both Renly Baratheon and Damon Blackfire, popularity trumped the rule of law. People loved these two way more than they loved Stannis and Daron, respectively. So Tywin... You're wrong. Love is stronger than fear, man. <laughs> As an aside, Stannis actually understood this. He knew love was better than respect or fear, but he knew no one loved him, and you can't be what you're not. You can't make people love you. But look at their examples. It's, it's really interesting. It's another example of George really making sure all these details fit. To, so let's look at that. Stannis had Robert to see the power of charisma firsthand. All his life, he lived in that shadow. Meanwhile, Tywin's father... Tried to be loved, but turned out to be an ultra disgrace, especially from Tywin's point of view. Now, who else thinks like Tywin in this regard? Tywin's descendants, Joffrey, Cersei, etc. They both have said things almost exactly like this now. Of course, they got that from Tywin. Despite this love everyone had for Daemon, it's generally a positive thing to love somebody. Love is generally a positive emotion, but it, sometimes it can lead you to do things that are wrong or unfortunate. So... A discussion here on the thoughts of Blackfire supporters and their unattractive themes that I see here. Ambition is not a good reason to challenge the throne. Dor racism of the Dornish, not a good reason to challenge the throne. Not a good reason to, to, over, to usurp the throne. Disliking peace, horrible reason to overthrow the king, in my opinion. So they didn't have justice or law on their side. Isn't that, do you agree with that, Stephen? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the way I look at it is more it's a sense of grievances boiling over. That, you know, if you look at the arguably boiling over for the better part of 300 years, you know, that the Targaryens had come in and completely rearranged a political order that had existed for thousands of years. And that leads to a lot of discontent. Now, I mean, in terms of, you know, justice, injustice, well, think about Sir Eustace Osgrey, right? Yes. To him, losing cold moat was an injustice. Right? Losing the title of, you know, Warden of the North March was an injustice. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Because we're 
we're dealing with a feudal political structure. Ultimately, you know, questions of justice come down to these very personal, you know, material concerns. They're who's got what castle, what belongs to whom, because everything belongs to someone. You can't give someone anything without taking it away from someone first, and that creates sets of winners and losers. So, you know, all of those, you know, scummy, you know, ambitious types who had, who had profited from Aegon the Fourth. well, their kids are not going to say, well, my dad was scummy, ergo, I don't deserve to have... <laughs> yeah, they're going to double down, yeah. <laughs> ...my inheritance. They're going to say, hell no. Yeah, they're going to say, you know, by all the laws of Westeros, <laughs> that's my castle. I'm going to take it back. Um, you know, and if you look, you know, throughout the history of uh, the Middle Ages, you know, all of these lordly rebellions, they're all driven by this deep sense of grievance over those kind of local issues. And especially given that, you know, as we'll talk about uh, during the Redgrass episode, mm-hmm. that a lot of his supporters were these second best houses who were in some ways reacting to the, the very existence of the Lord Paramountcy system. And sort of saying, why is it them and not me? You know, is that a question of justice? I mean, are the Lannisters being in charge more just than the the Reigns or, you know, the Casterlies for that matter? You know, the Tyrells didn't gain power particularly in a just fashion. True that. And that builds up resentment from the Oak Hearts and the High Towers and everyone else. So I think it's I think it's very complicated. I think in, in some circumstances you know, justice is in the eye of the beholder. That's true. You're, that's a great point. That's a very great point. And it's it's all about, and it goes to show that what Damon's supporters believed and what Darren's supporters believed about Damon's supporters were very different. They're, the Damon's supporters thought they were doing something just. Darren's supporters are like, look at these assholes just going after and purely motivated by ambition and this hero worship. And they, they probably just were disgusted by the whole thing. Uh, and we can see that point of view or at least a competing point of view from what Sir Eustace said from Egg's response in that conversation where he quotes his own father, Makar. My father says that was because Damon was a swordsman, and Daron never was, said Egg. Why give a horse to a man who cannot ride? The sword was not the kingdom, he says. We get the sense that this is also how a lot of people felt. Just how a lot of people agreed with Sir Eustace, a lot of people are going to agree with Makar slash Egg here. Why did this sword become such a big deal all of a sudden? You act like it's important that Aegon gave it to Daemon, but we say the opposite. The fact that he gave it away to a bastard while never setting aside Daron in the line of succession argues that the sword is not that important. This is the same guy that gave dragon eggs away for sex. You can't possibly tell me this is meaningful. But Daemon's supporters thoroughly disagreed with that line of thinking. So that's why it came down to fighting, I suppose. (laughs) So... Regardless of the truth or justice of his cause or lack thereof, didn't stop Damon's adherence. When King Damon I Blackfire was crowned in 196, he had many supporters. In this manner did the first Blackfire Rebellion begin in the year 196 AC. Reversing the colors of the traditional Targaryen arms to show a black dragon on a red field, the rebels declared for Princess Dana's bastard son, Daemon Blackfire, first of his name, proclaiming him the eldest true son of King Aegon IV and his half-brother Daron the Bastard. So calling Daron a bastard was necessary, so as not to be seen as pure usurpation. But of course we know that Daron supporters knew that for what it was, propaganda, and Daemon's supporters believed it. Well, most of them probably did. The ambitious ones were just 
yeah, this is going to get me what I want. Now, that also might explain some of the harshness that comes after the war. And they're like, well, you jerks, look at what you did to the realm. You tore everything apart for this man's vanity, for your own ambition. Certainly Bloodraven felt that way. Some of the others caught, uh, wanted the penalties imposed on these folks to be a little mild, but that's something to discuss later. Now, that conversation between Egg and Sir Eustace comes from the Sworn Sword. I particularly enjoy the audiobook version of this one, as the reader Graham Malcolm, not Roy Dutrice, does a great job with Sir Eustace's voice. When he speaks of Damon, you can feel the change in his voice as he laments what could have been for himself, his sons, and his beloved King Damon. Go to historyofwesteros.com, click on the link to the right to get a free 30-day audible.com audiobook trial. It comes with one free download that you get to keep, even if you don't keep your subscription. The Sworn Sword makes an excellent choice. It's small, it's short, it's not a big investment of time. It's a great way to see if you like the audiobook experience. And it's got the most information on the Blackfire Rebellions of all the sources, save perhaps the World of Ice and Fire, which is also available on Audible as an audio download. It's also a great choice for that one free download. So again, historyofwesteros.com, Audible trial link on the right to get started. Okay, we're going to close out this episode. We had a few other things planned for it, but we plan to be flexible. So this last part, which is the legacy of Damon Blackfire, we're going to save that for after the Redgrass Field action. It'll be in the Redgrass Field episode, to be clear, but after the action is done. A good spot for it. I want to thank Stephen for being our guest today. Really excellent discussion. Stephen, thanks again. My pleasure. Tell everybody where to find you again. Uh, you can find me at raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com. Awesome. And, of course, they'll find you again here for the Red Grass Field episode, which we're really looking forward to. Thanks also to Jesse Kowal for the cover of our excellent theme song, originally by Joey Townsend. Yeah, Jesse, you did a great job. I'm really happy to be able to include this. It's always awesome to include things from the fandom, from our own fans, as well as the Song of Ice and Fire fandom in our show. We're really appreciative of that. Glad we could put this up here for you. So, we need to go through our supporters here. Patreon credits. Our first lord and hand of the king is Cash Craig, Lord of Mines. We have Lord Jim, the fortuitous of wars and politics of Ice and Fire Blog, and Lord of the West, who you'll be seeing next episode. Lord George Stormsville, the cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North and Warden of the North. Frontier Lord James Noakes. James Knox, excuse me, of the Poker Fort, Hammer of the Dornish Session, and Warden of the South. Our small council is Lord James the Scholar, Senior Counselor, and Master of Whispers Extraordinaire. So I'm trying to come up with another nickname for, for you. I, I like to expand these nicknames sometimes because it's just so much fun. Grand Maester Itai wears the jeweled crown of many medals. Lord Robert Jacobs is our Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws. Lord James Tuttle is our Master of Ships. Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki is our Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. High Chieftain Drew of the Frostfangs is Lord of the Claymore. Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Lord Acerus of Dragonmont, Serpent in the Narrow Sea. Lord Damien San the Resilient, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Spear Swansong. And Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, who played this game hanging on our wall. This is a nine-player 
Game of Thrones board game modified by some online. This game is not available anywhere. You can only download it. It's a modification to the standard six-player game. And Gregor the Toasty came to play the game with us at DragonCon a few weeks ago. Great time. The winner was House Lannister, which was not me or Ashea or Greg. So we were defeated. <laughs> I was House Aaron. I was, I was close, but couldn't pull it off. Also, listener Marshall Shane Black played the board game with us. We met him at DragonCon. Kind of a funny story. As we were setting up the game and explaining the rules, it dawned on him that he knew our voices. <laughs> he only, of course, he listens to us on audio, not on YouTube, so he didn't recognize us at first. He's like, wait, you guys have familiar names and sounds. Sure enough, turned out to be a listener. Always fun to meet people out in the world like that. Uh, thanks for gaming with us, Shane. Lord Commander Shepard is our history of Westeros... Lord's Commander of the Kingsguard. Lord Commander George the Golden commands the history of Westeros Night's Watch. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Now remember, folks, Patreon has a messaging system. Some of you guys signed up to pledge to us, and we responded to you, trying to get some of your information, thanking you, and we didn't get responses back. And a couple people have told us months later that they didn't realize Patreon had a messaging system. And they say, oh, I didn't see this email from you. So I assume that there's a few more of you out there that didn't know that you sent a, that we responded to you, and hopefully you didn't feel like we just left you hanging. We didn't. So thanks also to Queen of the Timeline, Rhaenys Targaryen. She corrected me on several dates by about a year. I was about a year off on a couple people's ages. Really excellent to have those things tightened up. She also posed some other interesting questions that aided to our discussions in this episode. And of course... Thanks to Ashea for being working behind the scenes. She couldn't be in this episode, which was disappointing to myself and some others. But, you know, life, life is life and things happen. So she'll be back very soon. Now, also, thanks again to Stephen and to everyone for listening. So we'll see you all next time, folks. I want to close out with something kind of unusual and interesting. You, some of you have heard me advertise DraftKings through the site before. And sports, some people, some of us Song of Ice and Fire fans just not give a crap about sports, and I get that. This is something different. Now, DraftKings is doing League of Legends drafting. Whoa! <laughs> They're getting into e-gaming. This is just the start. They're going to do other games. They're going to be allowing you... Tell me when they do Hearthstone. Yeah, I imagine Hearthstone is coming. So that's pretty cool. That's, and it's also a lot more relevant to the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, where sports is not such a great connector. But, but if you're interested in DraftKings from a sports perspective, because I can't explain how the League of Lessons drafting works. It was literally announced today that it's going live, so I couldn't tell you a thing about it. I will report back for a future ad as to what, what the deal is. I think it's going to be pretty cool. It's a fun idea. Something outside of sports, for sure. I, I, I'm okay. I like baseball. I like football. But I prefer games. <laughs> I prefer fantasy games, particularly. So this is very exciting to me. But if you do like sports, DraftKings has literally has first places in their NFL prizes of one to two million dollars. I know someone personally that won two million dollars on DraftKings or one million dollars on DraftKings last year. Holy crap. That was kind of life-changing money for him. Yeah. Anyway, you can sign up for DraftKings through History of Westeros, bottom right corner, DraftKings link. If you sign up and deposit, you will get a free $20 ticket to enter a tournament of any kind, including those NFL tournaments, which have these one and a half to two million dollar first prizes fun stuff even if you're not a big football fan it's it's it, the idea of being able to win two million dollars off of a 20 dollar entry fee is kind of crazy so check that out if you're interested and we will see you all next time thanks for tuning in to history of westeros 
Thanks again, Stephen. Valar Morgulis.